Vishnupad, Paramahamsa, Pravrajakacharya, Astatara, Satyashri, Srimad, Divine Grace, A.C. Bhaktivedanta, Swami Maharaj, Prabhupada, Ki Jai. This confounder, Shri-Kishna-Chaitanya-Prabhu-Nityananda-Shri-Dvaita-Gadadhar-Shivasati-Gaur-Bhakta-Vrinda-Ki-Jai all glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale Srimati Bhaktivedanta Swami Niti Namane Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Pacharne Nirvasesa Sanyavadi Paskachade Satarane Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Yuta Padakamalam Shri Gurun Vaishnavamscha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raganatam Bitams Tam Sajivam Sadvoitam Sadvadutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Bitamscha 
Vanchaka Pachubishakri Pasindaviva Chapachitanam Pavanavio Vaishnavavio Namo Namaha Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Yasya Kriyamoga Krita Krita Deha Adi Bihi 
with the body, mind, ego, and intelligence. Daiva Tantrai, under the control of superior power. Atmanaha, of the self. Sukham. Because the materialist is in gross ignorance of how the laws of material nature act upon him as a result of his fruit of activity, he mistakenly plans to enjoy bodily comfort in the human form of life through so-called economic development, through pious activities for elevation to the higher planetary systems, and in many other ways. But factually, he becomes the victim of the reactions of his fruit of activities. So that's actually interesting. You, we're the victims of our own behavior. The Supreme Personality of Godhead is situated as a super soul within the cores of the hearts of all living entities. As the Lord says in Bhagavad Gita 1515, I am seated in everyone's heart, and for me come remembrance, knowledge, and forgetfulness. The desires and activities of the living being are observed by the super soul, who is the upadrasta, the overseer, and who orders material nature to fulfill the various desires of the living being. As clearly stated in Bhagavad Gita 1861, The Lord is situated in everyone's heart, and as one desires, the Lord gives one various types of bodies, which are like machines, riding on such a machine. The living entity wanders throughout the universe under the control of material nature and the modes. I get this little picture of all these living beings sitting on all these like little cars that Krishna's given, just like driving all over the universe on these machines. Thus the living being is not at all free to act, but is fully under the control of material nature, which is fully under the control of the Supreme Personality of Godhead. As soon as a living entity is victimized, and here we have again the word victim, by material desires to lord it over material nature, he is subjected to the control of material nature, which is supervised by the Supreme Soul. The result is that one again and again makes plans and is baffled. But as foolish as he is, he cannot see the cause of his bafflement. This cause is distinctly stated in Bhagavad Gita. 
because one has not surrendered to the Supreme Personality of Godhead, he must work under the control of material nature and its stringent laws. The only means of becoming free from this entanglement is to surrender to the Supreme Lord. In the human form of life, the living entity must accept this instruction from the Supreme Person Krishna. Sarva dharman parichaja mam ekam sadhanam braja. Do not plan to achieve happiness and drive away distress. You will never be successful. Simply surrender unto me. So that's interesting. Prabhupada's giving that as if it's the translation of that verse. Unfortunately, however, the living entity does not accept the Supreme Lord's clearly stated instructions from Bhagavad Gita, and thus he becomes a perpetual captive of the laws of material nature. So Prabhupada's just using this, to be captive, to be controlled, to be a victim. Hmm? Yagnart now, he goes on to a, a slightly different but related point here. Yagnartat karmano natra lokoyam karma bandhanaha. If one does not act for the satisfaction of Krishna, who is known as Vishnu or Yagya, he must be entangled in the reactions of fruitive activities. These reactions are called papa and punya, sinful and pious. By pious activities, one is elevated to the higher planetary systems, and by impious activities, one is degraded to a lower species of life, in which he is punished by the laws of nature. In the lower species of life, there is an evolutionary process, and when the term of the living entity's imprisonment or punishment in the lower species is finished, he is again offered a human form and given a chance to decide for himself which way he should plan. If he again misses the opportunity, he is again put into the cycle of birth and death, going sometimes higher and sometimes lower, turning on the samsada chakra, the wheel of material existence. As the wheel sometimes goes up and sometimes comes down, the stringent laws of material nature make the living entity in material existence sometimes happy and sometimes distressed. How he suffers in the cycle of happiness and distress is described in the next verse. Dehadi bir daivatantrayar atmana sukam ihata dukatya yam chanis asya kriya mogha krita krita. The living entity tries to achieve happiness and rid himself of the causes of distress, but because the various bodies of the living entities are under the full control of material nature, all his plans in different bodies, one after another, are ultimately baffled. All right, so we had yesterday, the verse was that the living entity should look for happiness where? Within. And instead, what was the living entity compared to? A deer running to a desert for water when there was already water where? Under the grass that he couldn't see. And the question was asked, how do we see our real self? Right? And we were talking about, we see ourselves in a mirror, right? If you want to see yourself, you look in a mirror. So how do we see this, the real self? We look in the mirror, but the mirror is dirty. So how do we cleanse the mirror? How do we clean the mirror to look at ourselves? So here Prabhupada is saying it is the process of what? What does he say in this purport? What's, what do we have to do? Surrender. Yes, we have to surrender. Of course, none of us like that word. Right? Does anybody want to surrender? Nobody wants to surrender. Like there are these wars going on in the world and so many people are being killed 
and so much devastation is being done, but nobody wants to surrender. Just the, the whole concept, you know, ah, I don't want to surrender. It has this, this huge negativity involved with it, but actually the only happiness is in surrender. <laughs> All right. So first we're, let's look at what the problem is, and then we're going to look at the solution. I'm going to look at two aspects of the solution as Prabhupada looks at here. The aspect of surrender, and particularly the aspect of working for Krishna in the world. Yagyartart karmano natra, as Prabhupada quotes uh, in the last paragraph. So what is the problem? The problem is, just like I explained yesterday, we're trying to walk through walls and windows instead of doors. We're trying to get happiness in a way that we're not designed to get happiness. And uh, the very subtle aspect of this is that if all of our happiness already exists, if we already have access to infinite perfect happiness, in fact, we're already made of bliss. Right? Satchit Ananda. We're also made of bliss. As soon as I look for happiness outside myself, as Prahlad Maharaj explains, the very act of looking for happiness makes me unhappy. Because the very act of looking for happiness is indicative of the fact that I don't think I have it already. And that very concept makes me unhappy. Do you feel able to follow the logic? If I'm saying I have to find happiness outside myself, that means I don't have it. And then immediately I'm feeling some kind of a lack. We feel happy when we feel abundant, isn't it? Yes, and when we feel some scarcity, we feel unhappy. So the very act of looking for happiness in and of itself, just as soon as we say, as this is what Prahlad Maharaj says, that we become happy, unhappy as soon as the search for happiness begins. And then we're also unhappy because of the ways we're trying to find happiness. We're trying to find happiness by using a machine to engage with, to have the machine engage with various sense objects. Which means that I'm not actually touching anything directly. It's like, you know, if you're, you're using a robot arm to touch something soft, but you can't feel anything. Now we're identifying with the body, so we imagine that we are, but we're not. And the Shastra compares this situation to a dream. Right? I think we could also, in the modern day, like my godbrother Sadaputta compared it to virtual reality. Or someone's playing a computer game, and they create an avatar, which is interesting word, but that's what they're called. You know, you create some avatar in the game, and you're being in the game, they're doing all these amazing things. They're fighting bad guys, and they're winning gold, and they're whatever they're doing in their game. And because you identify with it, you think that you're doing it. And I've seen teenagers play games where they don't even want to eat. Because you're thinking it's you. Or as Srila Rupa Goswami explains nicely in the northern ocean of the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu, that when we're watching a drama, we feel the emotions of the characters. Even if they're fictional characters played by actors, we start to feel those emotions as if they're ours. But we're not actually interacting with those items of sense enjoyment, are we? 
So maybe the actor in the drama, you know, gets married and we're thinking, oh, how wonderful. But we're not, we're still single sitting in our chair. You follow? Or the actor in the drama, they win, you know, a pot of gold, but my bank account is still in the red. It, it hasn't actually changed my experience. The actor in the drama eats a big feast, you know, but all I have is Raymond noodles. And, you know, it doesn't, my actual experience doesn't change, although because of attachment, I'm thinking emotionally that I'm enjoying what I'm seeing. So all of our material happiness is like that. We're just witnessing. Krishna says this in both the fifth and the 13th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. I, I'm just the soul. I'm just witnessing these things. And throughout the, the Shastra, throughout the Bhagavatam, our existence is compared to a dream. So it doesn't have to be watching a character in, in a drama. It can be watching my own body in a dream. Right? So I, I often tell this story. So I was fasting from food and water one day, on a fast day, and I took a little rest. And I was dreaming that I was eating a feast, because I was hungry. I remember I was dreaming I was eating cauliflower pakoras. And then I was drinking water, and I had a cup, and in my dream, I drank the whole cup of water, you know? Just emptied the cup. And then in my dream, I was thinking, I'm still thirsty. And then I drank another cup of water, and another cup, and another cup. And finally in my dream, I took a whole big jug. A whole, you know, one of those big jugs? And I was drinking that, and I was still thirsty. And then in my dream, I thought, well, there's something funny going on here. And then I woke up, and I thought, oh, it was dream water. So all of our material enjoyments are dream water. You know, when you're dreaming, you actually get a sensation, right? Isn't that funny? Because all the sensations take place in the mind. So you're dreaming, you actually are tasting the food. I, I was feeling the sensation of water, I was feeling the sensation of food, but nothing was actually happening in my gross body. And that's what's happening in the world, as, as Prabhupada's quoting here, right? Ishwar Sarvabhutanam Ridesharajunatistati Brahmayan Sarvabhutani Yantarudrani Maya were riding on this machine. And the machine is having the experiences, not me. So that's another reason why I'm not happy with material life, because I am not experiencing anything. And we, we, we become aware of that sometimes. Every once in a while we go like, something's funny here. Like in my dream, I thought, something's funny. I remember reading about this very, very famous, very, very rich rock star that when he got to be 25, he like had everything. And he said, is this it? Is that all, the, is that all there is? And we have those experiences, right? You get the house, you get the car, you get the perfect romantic partner, you get the degree, you get the job, and then you're like, that, that's it? It wasn't... It wasn't, it, it wasn't the advertisement. You follow? It wasn't what I thought it was. Or maybe you've seen videos of animals trying to eat like pictures of food. You know, it, it's like that. You know, it, it looks like it's something. Krishna calls it a reflection that appears to be in darkness. Or in the 15th chapter he says it's like the reflection of a tree. 
And it may look like, you, oh, there's a mango on the tree, but you, you pick it and there, you, there's nothing there. There's actually no experience there. And then we could say another reason it's suffering is just we're, we're trying to enjoy things that aren't enjoyable. Like we could say if you try to exit this room through the door, all you'll get is some bruises. And if you try really hard, you might get broken bones. If you try to exit the room through the window, you'll definitely get some broken bones. And again, that's not the fault of the architect or the builder. But Prabhupada's saying here, we don't understand the laws of nature. Just like a little tiny baby may try to exit a room through the window, because they don't know. So we don't really understand the laws of nature, and it's, it's interesting that Prabhupada uses these words controlled and forced and victim, and it almost sounds like, you know, I don't have any free will. But it's more like if we're talking about the laws of the building. And if you try to exit, like I have a room upstairs, if you try to exit the upstairs room through the window, then the laws of nature will cause you to suffer. Is that the fault of the laws of nature? No. Whose fault is it? Mine, entirely. Does this make sense to everybody? Prabhupada will give the example, if you overeat, you'll get a stomachache. I'm sure we've all experienced that. Have we all overeaten at least once in our life? And then we're like, oh, I can't move, my stomach hurts. And if we continually overeat, then we have all kinds of problems. You know, you see people who are, they're so obese they can hardly walk. And people get diabetes and heart trouble and so many things because we're hitting against the laws of nature. But are we victimized, really? Can someone say, well, I got cancer from smoking, I'm a victim? Not really. I'm a victim of my own behavior. And this fact is very nicely explained by Srila Raghunath Das Goswami. So I know I taught Manashiksha here before, right? I'm sure many of you got our edition of Manashiksha. So Srila Raghunath Das Goswami, and he explains, he's talking even for the devotees, because it's as Bhaktivinoda Thakur says, it's a padati, it's a step-by-step -step guide. So even in the first verse, you may have great love for Guru and your mantra and the holy name and holy places. Right? You may be following the process of bhakti, but you may be bewildered by the prostitute of mundane talks. And once you get over that, and once you're speaking all about Krishna, Hare Krishna Prabhu, then you may get tripped up by the highway robbers. So I don't think in Melbourne you have very many highway robbers. I know it used to be in Vrindavan, especially if you went on the Radhakund Road in the dark. They'd say, don't go on the road between Vrindavan and Radhakund in the dark that there were robbers at the side of the road who would stop you and steal your money. And uh, certainly it's like that to even today in Johannesburg. When you go to Johannesburg, they warn you, be careful when you stop at the robots. And I'm thinking, the robots? What are the robots? That's what they call the traffic lights. They call them robots. They say when you stop at the robots, you may get carjacked. Somebody may come with a gun and steal your car. 
And sometimes people get murdered. When people get murdered, their cars get stolen. So Raghunath Das Goswami says there are, there are these highway robbers. But who are these highway robbers? Lust and his friends. Lust, anger, envy, greed, illusion. And the way Raghunath Das Goswami puts it is, it's our own lust that's robbing us. I mean, even a very simple example is you don't have enough money and so you buy something with money you don't have because you're lusting after it. Do people do that? Hopefully nobody in this room. But do people do that? Yeah, right? Actually, one devotee friend of mine, when he got married, he and his wife were buying all this gorgeous new furniture. And I said, you know, this is, you don't need to do this. You can go to a second-hand shop and you can get some beautiful furniture for like, you know, 10 or $20. So, you know, it's a, later maybe buy furniture, but you know, not right now. And I talked to him a while ago and he said, you know, I was buying in debt and I had to, I had to declare bankruptcy. He said, now for seven years, you know, I can't get a credit card, I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't do this, I can't do that. So he was a victim of his own lust and greed. Do you, do you all follow? I'm being pushed by my lust. I'm being pushed by my own greed to spend money I don't have, and then I suffer. Well, that's such a simple example. Or overeating. You know, I'm being pushed by my own lust, my own greed. Or sometimes we're pushed by our own anger. We get so angry at someone. What do they say? Anger is like drinking poison and hoping the other person will die. Right? So I'm so angry at someone, so vengeful at someone, that I'm causing my own self so much mental and physical distress. I'm allowing that person, if that person hurt me in the first place, I'm allowing that person to keep hurting me, but I'm doing it to myself. So I become a victim of my own behavior. Do we all experience that we're victims of our own behavior? And we do things... The way Srila Raghunath Das Goswami puts it in this verse, which is verse 5, is we're doing things that we know are wrong. And this is, of course, what Arjuna says in the Bhagavad Gita. Why do I do things that I know are wrong, he says. And, and Arjuna says, as if by force, like Prabhupada's using these words here. And we feel like that, don't we? When we eat that third piece of cheesecake, you know, or you watch some stupid cat video instead of answering the emails you were supposed to answer, whatever, we know it's wrong. Or we're talking some critical prajalpa about somebody. Oh yeah, you know, that devotee is like this. And all the time we're going, I shouldn't be saying this. This is wrong. This is going to hurt me. And we do it anyway. Yeah? And, you know, Arjuna says, why? And when I first read that when I was 17, the first time I read Prabhupada's Bhagavad Gita, I'm like, yes, why? What's forcing me to do things I don't really want to do? And Krishna says in the next verse, it's your own lust. It's because you do really want to do them. <laughs> it says you want to do them so much, you don't care about the consequences. That's actually the definition of lust. You want it so much, you don't care about the consequences. And that's like the essence of criminality. 
You know, I want this money so much, I don't care if I go to jail. Or the, the example I like to give is of our U.S. former President Clinton. You know, arguably the most powerful person in the world. A Rhodes Scholar. And he has some stupid sexual affair with some intern. Risking everything. His marriage, his position, his wealth, his reputation, everything. For what? What was he, he was getting some great, was he getting something out of it that was worth what he was risking? No way. But we're so impelled, I mean that's just such an obvious gross example, but we're so impelled by wanting something that we just think forget about the consequences. I was actually just having a conversation with someone like that today. I want to do this, I don't care what the consequences are. I'm like, hey, you're going to hurt the people you love the most if you do this. That's not my problem. I have to do this thing. Fortunately, his wife prevailed on him. <laughs> and she says, you know, you're really going to hurt me and you're really going to hurt everybody that you love in your fight for justice. This is not the way to do it. But that's lust. And we often think that it's some some higher thing. Like someone just said to me the other day, don't we need greed to motivate us to do our work? And we're thinking, if I didn't have envy, if I didn't have greed, if I didn't have lust, if I didn't have anger, then I wouldn't be motivated. I would just sit around like a... You know, I need to take shelter of these things, but they're all robbers. And how interesting it is, the way Prabhupada puts it here in this purport, right? That the Lord knows our desires. Okay, please try to understand this. We have desires for things that are bad for us. And things that are impossible to achieve. Trying to find happiness outside of ourselves. And Krishna understands those desires. And so he gives us knowledge, right, and intelligence, how to fulfill those stupid, horrible desires. He gives us forgetfulness of our real self, because that's what we want. Then he gives us a suitable machine to try to fulfill those desires, and sets up this whole world of illusion for us to try to fulfill those desires. Because he's very kind. Because we have free will. And he's very kind. It's something like, you know, somebody wants to take pleasure in some amusement park ride. You see these rides where people go upside down and twirl around upside down and they throw up and things like that. So people want to enjoy that and therefore the amusement parks are created. And once you get on the ride, do you have control anymore? No, you're completely under the control of the ride. And why are these rides created? Because people want them. Does this, you follow? Why are all these horrible movies and why are they existing? Because people want them. They want to watch somebody cut up into little pieces or, you know, they want to see that. 
even though everyone knows it's bad for themselves. This, this is an open secret. Why are all this garbage food created? Because people want it. And does everyone know it's bad for you? That's not a secret, right? Is it some big secret? That eating all this ultra-processed food is bad for you? Everybody knows that. People are now knowing more and more that meat is bad for them. It's bad for the environment. It's bad for them. Or what to speak of, you know, intoxicants. Does everyone know alcohol is bad for you? That, that's not a secret. Alcohol, tobacco, what to speak of drugs, even coffee and tea. There's plenty of information that people have that although this may give you some sort of, some kind of illusory, pleasurable experience for a moment, it's going to harm your brain. It's going to harm your body. It may make you do some terror, may make you kill your mother and you don't even know you did it until you get off of it. That happens. And then you're in jail for the rest of your life. And this is open. And yet people do it. And once they do it, they become under its control. Once you drink alcohol, you know, you become under the control of that alcohol until it wears off. So Krishna is providing all of these awful experiences because we want them. And that's his kindness. It's not that Krishna is some mean God punishing us because we're not surrendering. This is the... the Muslims and the Christians particularly have this view that God is going to punish you, not just punish you, but punish you eternally. You know, you have this one life, and if you make a bad decision, that's it. You're punished eternally. That's not the fact. The fact is that Krishna is very kind. And he says, you know, if you want something foolish, look, this is something foolish. He gives all the information. It's not that we're ignorant. We're full of knowledge. We have all the information. We have all the experience. But still, if that's what we want to do, he will give us the machine. Keep in mind also that none of these terrible things are actually happening to us at all. We're not actually getting damaged by all of the suffering that we go through. In fact, we're not even really suffering. Again, it's like a dream. It's, it's an illusion world. Like someone goes, again, to an amusement park or a theme park. Those places are real. They exist. But they're giving you an experience that's not reality. Can you understand the difference? Right? The movie exists. The actors were in the movie. Somebody was filming it. There's a film. And there's colors projected on a screen. So there's something there, but it's not what it appears to be. It's something, but it's not what it appears to be. So our experience of suffering in this world, it, it has a reality to it, but it's not, it's not what it appears to be. We're not actually having birth, death, old age, and disease. We're not actually losing our money on the stock market. We're not actually having our spouse cheat on us. We're not actually having our arm broken. We're not actually having cancer. None of those things are actually happening to us at all. So it's not that Krishna is really making us suffer, but he's giving us this illusion because we want it. All right. So what is it we have to change? Our desire. We're wanting the wrong thing. And the yes. 
We have to change our desire. And the whole process of bhakti is to change our desire and to get us to accept that our real happiness is within, in our relationship with Krishna. And there, as Prabhupada writes in the first canto, we have full freedom. That's a relationship of full freedom. But also we have this word here used, surrender, and that seems to be in opposition, which is one of the reasons that we resist it. We're thinking I'm free in illusion, where we're not free at all, where we pay for the ride and then we're strapped in and we're stuck until the ride's over. We voluntarily put ourselves under the control of material nature. But we're thinking there that I'm free, and we're thinking that in surrender to Krishna, that there I'll be a victim. We have it confused. So what does surrender to Krishna mean, where we get our actual freedom, and where we can act with actual agency? So there's six symptoms of surrender. Six parts of surrender. Does anyone know what they are? What are the six parts of surrender? Accepting what's favorable. Well, that sounds intelligent. Rejecting what's not favorable. Does that sound intelligent? Right? If I want to be happy, I should accept things that are favorable for my happiness and reject things that are unfavorable for my happiness. That just sounds reasonable and logical. Have we given up any kind of freedom there? Does that sound awful? Okay, what's another one? Humility, well that sounds really awful. Let's leave that one for last. That's the most scary of all of them, so we'll talk about the most scary thing last. After accepting what's favorable, rejecting what's unfavorable, what's another one? Understanding that Krishna is my protector. That actually sounds really nice. I mean, of course, in my false ego, I may say, well, I don't need Krishna, I'll protect myself. How is that working out for everybody? You know, wouldn't it be nice to have the most powerful person as my protector? That sounds pretty cool. That sounds cool to me. I mean, the most powerful person is my protector. All right, that seems logical, doesn't it? But do we have some, some big resistance to this? Okay, what's the next one? Krishna is my maintainer. Now again, we may have some resistance to this. We may think, well, I want to maintain myself. I want to have my own job and my own place and my own thing and maintain myself. I don't want anyone else maintaining me. Can we maintain ourselves independently? Is that possible? Like when we teach career dharma, so sometimes I say the field of resources is creating all the wealth in society. So one devotee in Brisbane who works in that field said, well, we're not really creating it, are we? Aren't we getting it all from nature? And I'm like, yeah. Can I create any of my maintenance myself? Even if I was on some deserted island without society, you know, I'd have to live on what, coconuts or something. <laughs> Right? 
And for most of us living in society, we're dependent on so many things external to ourselves for our maintenance. And ultimately, I'm also, for my protection and my maintenance, I'm dependent on my body and mind, which folks can fail at any moment, just by the way, if you haven't noticed. I mean, all it takes is a bad fever. You ever had like a really high fever? Where you could hardly get out of bed? You know, it was a huge job just to make it from your bed to the toilet. Like, you know, that was, what did you get done today? I went from my bed to the toilet and back. So how can I, you know, you break your bones or something, right? Like a friend of mine who broke her arm and then she needed somebody to help her with everything. But it, it, doesn't, it doesn't take much, you know. I don't know. How do we even get fevers or something? Who knows even? Even if we're very careful and we're very clean and we're very healthy and we exercise. So I'm not maintaining myself anyway and I'm not protecting myself anyway. So seeing Krishna as my protector and maintainer is simply acknowledging what already is real. I, I don't really have to do something other than say, oh, that's what's actually going on. Just accepting reality. Okay, what's another one? This is a funny one. It's translated in many different ways. To not have a separate interest. And that one I think also is kind of frightening to us. Because I think, well, if I can't have my own interest, I can only have Krishna's interest, I start to feel like I've lost my autonomy. I start feeling that Krishna's a dictator. You know, evil people do that in the world. They take over a company or a country, or sometimes just with some poor person that they're abusing. And they try to have that person or those persons give up their own desires and simply satisfy their desires. You know, we think of terrible dictators like Hitler. You know, he was trying to use, he had the German army, instead of them swearing allegiance to Germany, they swore allegiance to him personally. And he's using them as just like extensions of his own senses. You know, I can't do everything myself, so I'm going to have all these people who are connected to me like they're just, you know, automatons. And they're going to do what I want. They're not going to have any separate interest. And so we think like that. We think, well, if I just make my interest the same as Krishna's interest, I won't have any of my own interests. And therefore, again, we resist this. But again, my interest is actually Krishna's interest. Like, the interest that, you know, we talked about the other day, and I like to talk about this a lot because it's just so clear. Our body is made up of many, many living cells. Right? Every part of my body is made up of individual cells that are alive. And they have their own desires. They want to eat, sleep, mate, and defend. And how will they best fulfill their individual desires? By serving me. If the individual cell does its job in my body for the sake of the health of my body as a whole, then it will also be happy. And I don't begrudge them their individual happiness. Do you begrudge the cells in your body their individual happiness? In fact, you want them to be happy, right? Does everyone want a happy stomach? Right. Do you like happy muscles? 
happy lungs, happy brain. Of course you want all your cells to be happy. Even if you're completely a selfish demon, you want the cells in your body to be happy. Otherwise you're not going to be happy. And what happens when cells act independently for their own happiness outside the happiness of the body? What do they become? What do we call that? Cancer. That's exactly what cancer is. That some of the cells say, oh, I'm not going to serve the body anymore. I'm just going to look out for myself. Yeah? So actually, Krishna's interest is already our best interest. That's already there. A very nice conversation. Again, I, I bring this up a lot. That's in the Bhagavatam is the story of Lord Brahma taking the cowherd boys and the calves. And then Krishna made these duplicates. And they were exactly the, well, no, they weren't exactly the same. There was something that was different. What was different about those duplicates? More lovable, yes. And that was why Balaram became confused. He's like, wait a minute. The parents didn't love their children that much. The cows didn't love their calves that much. Something funny is going on here. Hmm? And so Maharaj Prickett asked this question. He said, why is it that these parents loved, their ch loved Krishna as their child more than their own child. That's not what we see, generally speaking, in the world. I, I'm sorry, but I love my own children more than I love any of your children. I, I do. Prabhupada says you can't blame someone when he talks about how Krishna is partial to his devotees. He said you can't blame a man if there's a fire for saving his own children first. That's natural. But that wasn't what was happening here. And so Parikit was saying, how could they love Krishna more than their own children? And Parikit said, well, actually, what we love the most is ourself. The reason we love our family and our body is because in there is ourself. So we love ourself. But Krishna is the Paramatma. He's the self of the self. And so ultimately, what we're doing is we love Krishna. Sometimes Prabhupada will translate this symptom of surrender as not being independent in fulfilling our own desires. Knowing that we're not independent in fulfilling our own desires. Which again is just simply true. I can't even move my hand unless Krishna gives me permission to do that. We'll talk about this um, tomorrow with the Gita verses, the I am Gita verses. You know, I am the fire of digestion. I am the ability in man. So that's just acknowledging the truth, that I'm dependent. Another interesting way that Prabhupada at least one time translates that item of surrender is on the platform of those who are at Raganuga Sadhana. And he says, those, to introduce yourself to Krishna along with your associates in the spiritual world. So that I find interesting. All right, then the last one is humility, and that's the one we hate the most, although we make a, a lot of show in the Hare Krishna movement of humility. You take the mat. No, you take the mat. No, you take the mat. No, you take. I'm so fallen. I'm more fallen than you, Prabhu. No, I'm more fallen than you. you know? so we have this, these little humility games that we play, and, and those
those are actually valuable. You know, I realize uh, when you have an outside job in the world, people don't even pretend to be humble. They don't even acknowledge on a theoretical basis that there's anything wrong with them. And it's actually refreshing. At least the devotees say, well, you know, I'm just so envious and I'm so fault. At least theoretically they're saying that, even if they don't believe it. So we have at, at least some concept. But humility is also liberating because it's also just true. I happen to be extremely small and insignificant. That, that is the fact. Right? Maybe you've seen those graphics where they, they look at like the whole universe and then they go down to the Milky Way and, you know, to our galaxy and our solar system. You ever seen those sort of things? And then down to our planet and, you know, we're, we're extremely insignificant, folks. I mean, somebody on another planet in the universe, some other body in the universe, they probably don't even see our planet. Maybe they have to use some huge telescope, you know. What's that little dot there? We are insignificant. So I ask this question all the time. How many of you here know all the names of your great-great-grandparents? Well, look at that. That means our great-great-grandchildren will not know our names. So I have right now two great-grandchildren. So that means their children will probably not know my name. I mean, I've had my grandchildren ask me, they'll say, Grandma, what was your mother's name again? <laughs> That's our own family. They won't even know our name. What to speak of anything that we did? We're thinking, I'm so important. My to-do list for today is so important. Folks, nobody cares. I seriously. You know, when we, when we die, people, you know, if, we're, if we were really loved, maybe we'll talk, people will talk about us for a week or two. Maybe. And there'll be some funeral ceremony and the devotees will have an excuse to eat galubjimans, you know. And they'll say, oh, that Ormila, she was wonderful. And then they'll go on about their business. Right? And for most of us, it won't even be like one friend of mine just passed away in North Carolina. I mean, and I was thinking, how many people even knew her? We're probably talking 20 or 30 people actually even knew this person. There's not even going to be like a blip on social media. So humility is just, it's such a relief. You go, ah, I don't have to pretend to be this big, significant, important person anymore. It's such a burden, isn't it? Walking around pretending, I'm so important, I'm so significant, everything I do really matters. Like, just, shh. <laughs> it's, it's such a relief, it's such joy. Of course, we're extremely significant to Krishna. He cares. He cares. Just like I care about my children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. 
I care. If it's their birthday, I call them, I say happy birthday, send them some present. I care. They're important to me. So each of us is very, very, very important to Krishna. But that's not because we are objectively very important, it's because there's love. And that's humility. And that, it's, that's actually a very joyful thing. Ashita Sanatana Goswami in Brihad Bhagavatamrita says, each coward boy thinks that he's Krishna's favorite and each coward boy is right. You know, Krishna's in the center and he's looking at each cowherd boy. He's dancing in Ras Lila with each gopi. Our acharyas say when he goes to the forest of Vrindavan, he makes sure he touches each flower, each blade of grass. Isn't that joyful? The most important person considers me very significant. Although objectively, I have no significance at all. Zero, zilch, just absolutely no significance, objectively. He thinks I am very significant. So that's humility. And humility is also, of course, what I was saying yesterday, I'm, I'm really stupid. I am, as a soul, I am a genius. It's one of the qualities of the soul, that we're all geniuses. And here I am a genius, and all my happiness is already within, and I'm running around looking for it someplace else. So that's also humility. It's hard to admit that, actually. It's, it's actually quite hard to admit that. But admitting that is, again, such a relief. <sighs> I can just be authentic. So once we do those symptoms of surrender, as Prabhupada quotes here, Daiviye Shagunamai, Mama Maya Duratiya, we cannot get out of this illusion, but Mam Eviye Prapadyante, Mayam Etam Tarantite. As soon as we do those six symptoms of surrender, boom, Maya's gone. And we see that at least on a small incremental level. I think we've all experienced that, that I do some surrender to Krishna and some aspect of Maya is removed. Just like, boof. Prabhupada says we see the naked form of material desires. You know, I do a little bit of surrender, and then Krishna says, I'm going to show you a little bit of truth. Whoa. And as we surrender more and more, then we see more and more of truth. We see more and more of our real self. And Krishna says in 620 Bhagavad Gita, when you see your real self, you're like, Whoa, there's nothing better than this. I can't be hurt by anything. And you relish and rejoice in the self. Now another aspect of surrender here is fascinating, and we don't have time to get into this in depth depth, but this is the last paragraph here, Yagnar Tart Karmano Natra, Lokoyam Karma Bandana, Tadatam Karma Konteya, Mukta Sangha Samantra. So surrendering to Krishna doesn't necessarily mean, it might mean this for some people sometimes, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm instantly out of the body. I may still be strapped into the ride, externally. But it means my consciousness changes, and in this world of illusion, I no longer am acting in illusion. I'm still in the computer game, I'm still in the dream, I'm still in the amusement park, 
but I no longer am attached to anything that's going on there. And I'm seeing it differently. I'm seeing that it's actually part of Krishna. The illusion isn't covering me in the illusion park. Kind of like if you're an actor on the set. Have you ever been to a, a set? Like a movie or a TV set? When I was 10, um, I, we went with my family on a trip to Hollywood. And I got to have, I, my parents had some friend there. And we got to have some tour of the movie and TV sets. And I remember I went on the TV set of one of my favorite TV shows. And in the show it was a house. And there you went up, the actors went up the steps to the rooms upstairs. But there wasn't actually an upstairs. There were stairs. But what they filmed as being upstairs was simply another set. Why should they spend the money to build two stories? Right? And, and in this favorite TV show of mine, the person had magic. They could do some magic thing and things would happen. And I watched how they actually filmed that. You know, the person did some whatever magic thing and then they just turn off the cameras and they move things around and then they turn them on again. At 10 years old, I was very disappointed that the actor <laughs> didn't actually have any magic. So it's interesting that Srila Rupa Goswami and also as uh, purported by Srila Vishwanath Chakravati Thakur and Srila Jiva Goswami, they talk about how when a person is watching a performance, there's no rasa in the actors. There's only rasa in the viewers. Why? Because the actors know that they're not the characters. If you're on the set and you can see that it's just a facade and you know the stairs go nowhere and you know that I'm not really this character, you're not identifying with the emotions of what's going on. Even if you're an expert actor, you're not really doing that. That's what acting is about. You're convincing to the audience that you're terrified or you're sad or you're in love. I mean, sometimes actors do get bewildered. And we find sometimes, you know, actors actually think they're in love with the person that they're pretending to be in love with on the set. And so they leave their actual spouse and they marry their pretend person on the set. <laughs> Those don't usually work out very well. Because in real life, they're different people. So sometimes the act actors get bewildered. It, it does happen but generally not. So once we surrender to Krishna, we become like an actor. And the actor has a job to do. They have a purpose. But it's different from what they're appearing to do. It may look like in their TV show that they're appearing to catch the bad guy, but there isn't act, that's not what's happening. Their job is really to entertain the audience. So it appears, once we surrender to Krishna, once we become awakened, it may appear that we have so many jobs in this world. I'm supposed to please my husband, my wife, my children, my boss, my this, my that. But really, the only person I'm trying to please is my audience. And who's my audience? Who's my audience? Krishna. Once I'm doing everything for the pleasure of Krishna, 
then I'm no longer bound and I'm not experiencing myself as being bound. The actors in a drama are not experiencing themselves as being bound. Even when literally in the drama they get bound. Even when literally in the drama some bad guy ties them up. Are they really tied up? No. They're not actually scared. So one who surrendered to Krishna, the illusion is removed, but Krishna may say, I still have some work for you to do there. I have a mission for you there. Maybe we came to illusion initially because of our material desires and our karma, as Prabhupada's talking about in this purport, the results of our fruit of activities for so many lifetimes. Maybe the reason I'm in the illusion world in the first place is completely, entirely, and utterly my own stupid fault. But Krishna then says, once we surrender to him, oh, well, you're there now. I have some mission. I want you to wake up other people. Why? Because as Vishnu Chakravati Thakur describes, Krishna is neutral. He's not going to interfere with the desires of the living entities. But the devotees don't have to be neutral. And so the devotees can go and wake up other souls. And when the devotees do that, Krishna's mercy follows the mercy of the devotees. So we may have some job to do here. And so we have this external role that, I'm, you know, I work for the phone company, or I work for the bank, or I work for this, or I work for that and I have this family member, and I have this friend, but we're no longer actually seeing things that way. We're no longer actually seeing, I'm a banker, I'm a software engineer, I run a company, I'm this person's daughter, I'm this person's son. We're seeing, Jivara Swaropaya Krishnaya Nityadas, I'm Krishna's servant, and this whole phantasmagoria is Krishna's energy, and we see Krishna everywhere, which we talked about a little bit last night. We'll talk about that more tomorrow night. Premanjana Charita Bhakti Vilochanena Santasa Daiva Ridayeshu Vilokayanti Yam Shamasundaram Chintuguna Swarupam. And this is kind of the essence of the Bhagavad Gita. Wake up, Arjuna! But now keep doing your same work, but in an awakened consciousness. Do your work as yagya. Do your work as a ceremony of connection, as a celebration of connection. Not that you're trying to enjoy the world separately. And then there is no illusion. There is no material world and there is no miseries. Although apparently we're still working in the world of miseries. We're not touched by them because we know they have nothing to do with us. We're acting on a different platform. So therefore, our real happiness is in surrender, as scary as that word is. <laughs> as, as much as we're terrified to do the very thing which is going to give us everything that we want. So questions, comments, additions, subtractions, chastisements? Yes. You mentioned that when we have a bad desire, Lord Krishna gives us forgetfulness of him. Yes. And he also arranges ways for us to fulfill that desire that Correct. we have. And you also mentioned he's very kind to do this all for us. Correct. So i like to ask, how can Lord Krishna be kind when he helps us fulfill those desires which are not favorable for us and our bhakti? And we also know, we uh, listen in Bhagavad Gita, that Lord Krishna is the Supreme Father and the best friend and the well-wish of all living entities. So then why does he give us this forgetfulness of him and why does he um, help us in our desires? Okay. And... Do you ever do things that you don't really want to do? Okay. 
You, you do some things that you know you shouldn't do and they're bad for you and you're going to regret them, right? Everybody here does too. I mean, I'm not picking on you. Yes, everybody does this? Does everyone do things that they know they're going to regret later? I should go to bed now. Oh, let me just do one more thing. Right? We all do this kind of thing. Would you like me to follow you around all day with a gun and force you to do the right thing? Isn't that interesting? Why do you want freedom to do the wrong thing? That's interesting, isn't it? Do you want Krishna to remove from you the desire to do things that are bad for you? Do you want him to force you to do the right thing? Do you? Sometimes you do, huh? Be careful what you want. Hmm? I know a devotee who prayed like that, Krishna force me please. And he jumped in the Ganga and broke his neck and became a quadriplegic. Of course, even that's not ultimately force. Even if you're a quadriplegic, you can still be in Maya if you want to, although the ways to be in Maya are limited. You could be just angry and in victim mode and hating Krishna, right? If Krishna didn't give you the facility to fulfill your desires, we couldn't do it. I can't, I can't fulfill evil desires without Krishna facilitating it. It's just, I can't do anything without Krishna facilitating it. I, I, just, I, I just can't. He is my ability. He is my intelligence. So without that, there, there's no question of, of freedom. Does that make sense? Thank you. Don't you want him to give you freedom? Even if you mess it up? You say, like a parent, to what extent do you want your parents to control you? Somewhat. But entirely? No, I don't think so. Do you? No. I mean, when we're infants, our parents have to try to control us entirely. You know, when we can't even move. They just pick us up and put us places. And even sometimes with toddlers, you know, I don't want to go. I'm sorry, we're not leaving you in the house by yourself. But I don't want to go to the store. Sorry, we're not leaving you in the house by yourself. And you just pick up the two-year-old and stick him in the car seat and scrap, strap them in when they're screaming. Yeah. But I don't think we want to be treated like that when we're 12. Yes. Mataji, uh, you mentioned about that um, we are interest is separate from Krishna's interest. Like, um, but once we kind of uh, take to devotional service, like for a practicing devotee, how can we actually know what is Krishna's interest? Because how can we know what is Krishna's interest? Oh, you know what's Krishna's interest. Yeah, like in, in a more, but like in a more specific way, like in a more, oh. with, you know. So how do we know moment to moment? Yeah. Instead of like just the big general picture? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, Krishna talks about the modes and he says that when you're in Tamagun, you think what's good is bad and what's bad is good. When you're in Rajagun, you, you, you get it right sometimes. Like you sometimes know what to do and you sometimes don't know what to do. When you're in Sattvagun, he says you know what is to be done, what is not to be done, what is binding and what is liberating. So in Sattvagun, we actually know what to do. 
Now even sattvagun isn't perfect because sattvagun is still selfish. I'm doing the right thing because it makes me happy. So ultimately I can only really know what to do at every moment if I'm above the gunas completely. So you're not going to know exactly what to do until you get yourself above the gunas. I mean, we have the guidance of guru and senior devotees, but please don't bother them about every little thing. You know, I had someone once write me, Ermila, I see you as my guru. Should I learn to play Murdunga? I said, if you want to. And then she said, well, should I buy a red Murdunga or a blue Murdunga? I said, please don't bother me with these questions. If you want to learn to play Murdunga, get whatever kind of Murdunga you want. Then she said, well, if you're not going to tell me what kind of color Murdunga to buy, I'm not going to learn how to play Murdunga. I said, okay, fine, then don't learn how to play Murdunga. <laughs> I mean, you know, don't bother people like this. I like to tell the story of that devotee who wrote Prabhupada a letter and he signed it, your eternally useless servant. You know? So it's not that you should be going to the senior devotees and your guru. Should I brush my teeth starting on the right side or the left side? Also, I think often people are asking, and, and probably not you, but I've had people ask this question, what does Krishna want? Because they're thinking, if I could just find out what Krishna wants, and I do that, then there won't be any negative consequences. If I do what I want to do, there'll be negative consequences, but if I could just find out what Krishna wants, that's not how it works, folks. When you do what Krishna wants, you become part of his lila, and you're always happy, and you're always experiencing ecstasy, but don't think that the things externally are all going to fall into place. You may get cheated in a gambling match and be exiled for 13 years, and have your children killed in their sleep by some demon. So it, it's not exactly that if I become part of Krishna's plan and part of Krishna's leela, that he's just going to like paint my life with gold and, and, you know, pave the road for me. So be careful of our motives also for wanting to know what is Krishna's desire. But the, the more that we get above, especially Rajas and Thomas, the more that these things become clear to us. Of course, we have the Shastra. You know, you can say that's general, but the Shastra has some specificity. It doesn't have no specificity. We have ample Shastra that tells us what Krishna likes, what he doesn't like. We have examples of the sadhus who are living the Shastra. What do they do? I mean, we've got to be discriminating, and not that all of us should eat like Raghunath Das Goswami eating old rotten rice. I mean, even the other devotees of Mahaprabhu didn't eat like that. They were, in fact, eating feasts with Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. But we can look at the sadhus. How do they live? How do they make decisions? We have then personal guidance from our guru and from senior devotees. Again, please don't bother them about what shoe to put on first. But, you know, we have, we have this general guidance. And then we should also be developing our own discrimination through practice of bhakti. I mean, one of my god sisters told me years ago a nice prayer. She said to pray to Krishna, please open the doors I should walk through and close the doors I shouldn't. And she said to me, and then don't force it. Don't try to get off of an elevator between floors. I mean, another thing that I've tried to do, and this is from the school of hard knocks that I came to this conclusion, is, is when Krishna wants to get his cows to move from one place to another, what does he do? Before he plays his flute, actually, he calls them and he has japa beads. You all know that? 
stated in Krishna book he has japa beads and they're made out of jewels and each bead represents a group of cows and he calls them by the, their group leader so first he calls them Hamsi right? and then he plays his flute then he has a buffalo horn and then he has a stick I tell people don't wait for the stick I say that from personal experience of sometimes waiting for the stick. So try to be receptive. One of the things we'll look at tomorrow is Krishna says that he is silence. Try to be receptive. Our, our, that's actually kind of the essence of, of property. I was just this morning hearing Prabhupada say that we're all Prakriti and that Prakriti can be translated as feminine. And if you want to think of the essence on, on, the, most, on the most biological level of how do we define masculinity and femininity, you know, stripping aside cultural ideas of masculinity and femininity, we just want to look at purely biology, the female is receptive. So to try to be receptive, to listen, to pay attention. You know, was, I think Nakul was very expert in the science of omens. Pay attention. When is Krishna saying, hey, Armila, stop that. Hey, do this. I mean, Srila Prabhupada talked about how he was out distributing back to Godheads. And one person said to him, you know, people throw away magazines. Why don't you produce books? People will keep them. I mean, not that you listen to everything everybody says. And you go crazy. But to try to have, how is Krishna communicating to me? To read the books like that. Don't read the books just so you can pass an exam. Or quote a bunch of slokas or something. But, you know, how is this purport talking to me? How is this verse talking to me? listening to Prabhupada's lectures and so forth. How is Prabhupada taught? What is he saying to me? And receptivity means that I'm willing to hear whatever is there, even if it shakes up my world. You follow? Yeah. You know? Thank you even if there's something that goes, ah. And then as you do that, Krishna will, and as if you, if you listen and you follow what you hear, then Krishna will communicate with you more and more openly. I mean, I remember when, you know, I became convinced that if I was repeatedly getting in a certain situation, that, that I might be putting out something that was attracting that. So I was repeatedly getting, I don't have time to tell the whole story, but I was repeatedly getting in a situation where other devotees were treating me in a way that I didn't like, even though I would say, can you please not do this? And it would happen again and again and again. And then finally I said, maybe I'm doing something. Maybe there's something I'm doing. And I said, Krishna, can you show me, I don't think I am, I don't see it, but can you show me if there's any way that I'm treating other people in the way I'm being treated? And literally the next morning, that's what happened. Somebody came to me, I mean, again, I don't have time to tell the whole story, although I have told it many times, and said, oh, Ermila, you're treating me this way. And I was like, oh my God, that's exactly how I'm thinking other people are treating me. So I asked and I was receptive. 
So fast forward some years, and I, I was with this, working with this group of devotees, and there was someone there that was treating me again quite badly. That time I didn't even ask. I remember getting off the conference call and sitting down, and this immediately Krishna revealed to me, I didn't ask, and someone didn't come. The first time I asked, and someone came up to me. This time I didn't even ask. I just sat down in the chair, and all of a sudden I thought, you treated this person like this, this person like this, and this person like this, go take care of it. And we're talking about things that had happened years before. And immediately I went, I wrote the emails, I made the calls, I, I, I think I've offended you here, can you please tell me what happened? And I came to see what I had done wrong. Why did Krishna reveal that to me? Why? Because previously I'd asked, and after asking, I had acted on it. Yeah? I mean, we, we all see any of us who ever give any advice to anybody, I'm sure everybody here gives advice to somebody sometimes, and you, you, get, you can tell whether the person is resisting you or not. What I used to do when that happened, because I'm a fool, I used to try to push through their resistance. I don't do that anymore. If somebody's resisting, I just stop. I say, you know, it's been really nice talking to you, but I have some things I have to attend to. It happened to me yesterday. Somebody contacted me, this, 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 this. And I said, well, have you thought about this? Have you read this? What about this? What about this? And they resisted. And I, I said, one time I said, you know, you're, you're fighting this. You're asking me for this, but you're fighting it. And then they fought that. And then I said, I have to prepare for tomorrow's class. Sorry, you know, can I talk to you later? I just stopped. So Krishna's like that. He's communicating. Prabhupada says that imperceptibly, 24 hours a day, Krishna's giving us guidance to surrender and guidance for our, you know. And if we, if we become receptive and we act on that within the bounds of Guru, Sadhu, and Shastra, I mean, don't be a crazy person that God told me to push you off the roof or something, you know, but we have that boundary. And if, you, if you're receptive and you act on that, then he'll speak to you more and more and more clearly and louder and louder and louder. That, that's basically how it works. Yes? Thank you very much, Mother. Is that all right? We could take maybe one more. Anybody has anything else? Okay, well, thank you very much. Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai. If anybody wants a book, we have one of the books is sold out, but we still have some of the other two. Yeah. Last three copies of Krishna Meditation and one copy of the same Oh my goodness, okay. So. Yeah.